So if I am sharing something with you from the pulpit, I'm never going to be able to give you 15, 20 hours worth of material in 45 minutes to an hour on Sunday morning. There's just no way. Because no matter who the minister is, if he's actually expositing the word of God, which is what we desire to do, it's going to be like a fire hose. So if you take what you can get from it, and here's, here's the thing. Can I borrow your book just a moment, please? You can spend an entire lifetime reading this book and you're never going to memorize it. Okay? But if you did memorize it and you had the ability to be able to memorize word for word and you don't make an application of what you are learning, you have learned nothing. And I have learned nothing. So it's important for us to be able to study the scriptures, to be able to study theology carefully, to be like as Jesus spoke of in Matthew chapter 7, the house that was built on the right foundation. That's what we're going to look at this evening. So when we come to this book, there are going to be some highlights. And, and when I'm putting the questions together or, or the, the lines for answering or summarizing your own words, what I want you to do is I want you to spend time, whether it's five minutes, whether it's ten minutes, whatever it is, reading through this, and I want you to ask the Lord to help you to be able to learn something from the passage that you are studying, both in the scriptures as well as in the theology, maybe that you are not aware of. Now, there's nothing wrong with learning. When we stop learning, we'll be dead. And, and the problem is that too often we come to discipleship and we think that because we've been saved X amount of years, somehow that makes us automatically spiritually mature. But it doesn't. It takes time. Progressive sanctification is a process, a lifelong process, to be able to get to where we can understand the scriptures and we're still ever learning. And so if you take one question or one aspect of it and the Holy Spirit convicts your heart because when the Lord Jesus Christ left, what did he say he would do? Send the Holy Spirit. He would send the Comforter. And what was the role of the Comforter? To teach us, to remind us, to remind us of what? I'm sorry. Yeah, what Jesus has said. Somebody else. All that God has done. All that God did. All that the Lord Jesus Christ did while he was while he was here on this earth. The last command he gave to his disciples was was to go into all the world and teach the gospel, make disciples, baptize them. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So when you come to this book, the real question that you should be asking is not just what can I learn or, or what, what new is in here that I have maybe never studied or maybe I've never understood before, but how can I apply what I'm learning? Let's look at the passage in Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, beginning at verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rains fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. 
the issue, the difference between these two is not the amount of rain. It's not the type of wind that blew. It was the foundation that the houses were built on. And if you and I do not build on a solid foundation, and the only solid foundation that we have is biblical theology. Because if we have a wrong theology, a theology that is not biblical, it's going to end up just like the house on the sand, and it's going to collapse. You may remember when we were taught, or when, when you were maybe younger in, in grade school, or little kid, and you were in junior church in Sunday school, and you know we all sang... Uh, the, the wise man built his house upon the rock. And then the, the foolish man built his house upon the sand and the rains came and the house came tumbling down. Splat! Now, the reason why, and this is one of those times I want you to hear and understand what I'm saying, the reason why your life and my life falls apart is because we have poor theology more times than not. When things go pear-shaped at work, when things go pear-shaped at home, when things go pear-shaped in our marriage, when things go pear-shaped in church, whatever it may be, it's because, number one, our focus is not on the Lord Jesus Christ. Our focus is not on eternity. Our focus is not building our lives according to the Word of God. Now, we're going to look at this a little bit later when we get further into the prolegomena, but I can tell you this, that just because we find one of the fallacies that most people have is that they think that sometimes they've got to read and read and read and go, get into the minutia of Scripture in order to be able to determine what God's will is, as one example. God's will is not hard to understand. You say, well, that's easy for you. You're already married. Or that's easy for you. You've already gone to college. Or that's easy for you. You've already bought a house or you've whatever. Those are not the things that you're going to find in Scripture. You're not going to wake up one day, walk outside, and there's going to be a nice set of clouds up there, and in the clouds is going to be written for those who are single. The person that you're going to marry. Her name or his name. But what we do find is the principles of God's Word says that we are not to marry an unbeliever. And furthermore, when we're talking about the will of God, the will of God is very simple. That ye be sanctified. That ye be holy. And this is the hard part because we don't like holiness. We don't like being corrected. Most human beings don't like being corrected at all. If somebody tells you to do something, you don't like it. If they correct you, you say, well, no, that's, the way, that's not the way I did it. Well, my dad did it this way. We don't like correction. And this is what 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 says. That it is good for all that we need so that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. What are the good works? The good works are the same ones that Jesus spoke of in Matthew chapter 4. And he says, let your light so shine so that they, the world, will see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now how, how is the world going to bring glory to God or how are they going to seek to glorify God if there are things that are within our life that are not glorifying to God? You see, this is where the rubber meets the road because doctrinal class is going to be the type of class that's going to step on your toes and mine. And it's going to require us to change. It's going to require us to do things differently. It's going to require us to reevaluate our lives. And how do we do this? And how do we do that? And again, we've said this before in a previous class. 
one thing you can't do though is you can't compare yourself to me or to dad or brother Jeff or brother Jerry or brother Gabe or anybody. Because we're not the standard. The standard is, as we spoke of this morning from 1 Thessalonians, be imitators of me as I am of Christ or I am of God. That's the standard. And the standard is perfect holiness. So you may come by one day and you may find Mark and I'm in some kind of trouble. Does that mean that God's word is now null and void? Absolutely not. God's word doesn't change. God doesn't change. So we need to have the desire in our hearts to be able to build the house. Now, you may say, I haven't really built much of a house yet. It doesn't matter what length of time that you've been saved, maybe because you didn't have a good theology. I had somebody speak to me this morning and had no clue really or no idea whatsoever in regards to why we baptize the way that we do, even though we're about to church. So I was able to share. And I think that's exciting. But that's building on a solid foundation. Not because we need one more Baptist in the ranks, but because, but because we need one more believer who is willing to do what God commands, and that is obedience. And that is hard. I understand. It's no different than when we're growing up and we're kids and mom and dad or mom or dad tell us, hey, you need to be doing this. You need to go clean your room or whatever. So we run in the room. We want to go outside and play. So the first thing we do, we grab all the dirty clothes. We grab all the clean clothes. We mix them all together and shove them under the bed and hope mom doesn't come look. And she does. And, she does. <laughs> and then to compound that you walk out. Are you young people listening? <laughs> No, I said young people. <laughs> and so then to compound the problem, you come out and you're on your way out the door and your mom says, Mark Anthony Escalera, did you clean your room? Uh-huh. <laughs> and mom goes, uh-uh. Back in there. Because she knows. Why? Because she was there. She probably did that as well growing up herself. Just like our kids do. And just like our grandkids do. So again, we need to make sure that we are changing to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And sometimes it's going to take a lot of introspection. We talked about this in, on, on Saturday morning with the men's breakfast. And I said, listen, one of the best things that you can do is find yourself an accountability partner. Find somebody who's willing to be honest with you that says, hey, wait a minute, what you're doing doesn't look like Jesus Christ today. That particular area that you're struggling with, I know what that's like to struggle. And I know that the God who helped me is the same God who can help you if you're a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why doctrine is so important. Because somebody eventually is going to say, oh, well, that's just your opinion. If all we're doing is giving opinions, what's the saying? Opinions are like noses, they all smell. No, it's not about opinions. It's about thus says God's word. And when God's word tells us to do something, we better be doing it. And we as a messenger, if you're being accountable to somebody, I, I, I'll make it even more poignant for you. Go up to your spouse and ask them if they see more of Christ in you today than they did last week. Ask them if they see your responses to them or when they get angry or when they get upset at you. Do we see a difference in one another 
Because our theology should be driving those kind of changes. You and I shouldn't be responding the same way today that we did five years ago or ten years ago or fifteen or twenty years ago. Because if the goal truly is to be like the Lord Jesus Christ and it's to see that theology have an impact on our lives, then we are going to grow just as surely as a baby is going to grow and he's not going to stay on the milk all of his life. He's going to have to learn how to eat. And after a while, you give him Cheerios or you give him a cookie or you give him whatever and he eats chocolate cake on his first birthday and it's all downhill from there. (laughs) So let's go to the questions this evening. Number one, we are on the introduction, the prolegomena. And this is covering pages 33 to 42. Prolegomena. Two words meaning before to say and to say. That simply means that this first chapter really is an introduction to theology. This is saying beforehand. This is setting the ground rules. This is setting the presuppositions. This is setting the Christian or the biblical worldview that we are going to adhere to in order to be able to see our lives change. This basically... From theology, question number two, what is theology? Theology is not distinctly a Christian term. It was used in at least four different ways in the ancient Greek or in the Koine Greek. Koine Greek simply means the language of the common people, the common Greek. But the two words combined mean theos, meaning God, and logia, meaning word. So, the God word. It was actually used in a number of different contexts. We're not going to go over them. Those are found in the, in the book. But to have a theology, a proper theology, ultimately, for example, uh, does the LDS church have theology? Yep. Does the Catholic church have theology? Yep. Uh, how about this one? Do the Muslims have theology? Yeah, they sure do. What about those 8 million gods in India? Is there a theology behind that? Ultimately there is. But when we're talking about theology from a Christian perspective, we are talking about the word of God as it applies to the study of God, the one true creator of all things. Okay? How might a person be tempted to redefine theology? Who has an answer? Really to change it to our watching R.C. Sproul this afternoon and one of the things that we looked at was the difference between religion and theology was, was when we start with man we get religion mm-hmm. when we start with God we get theology and so when I mean, our navel gazing um, is so prominent with everybody that it's very easy to turn that into where am I in the Bible and so that becomes an anthropological problem where we study yep. ourselves and then trying to derive God out of that, which then that becomes the religion, which is where we get the Catholics with the God plus, and we get the LDS as God plus, and so on. Yep, go ahead. Well, I just said a lot more than I wrote down, so... Oh, okay. Here's the definition. You can put this down on your paper. The difference between these two... 
Somebody ever comes up to you and you say, well, have you heard about the wonderful good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, I'm not religious. You know, funny, you should say that. I'm not either. Religion is all of man and whatever parts of God he chooses. That's religion. That's what he's saying. This is, in, in a nutshell, instead of that big word anthropomorphic or anthropological or anthropocentric, this is essentially what this means. All a man, whatever parts of God. So if you take somebody and he says, what does your religion say? How do you know? What is the hope that you have of eternal life? Every religion will tell you the same thing. We have no hope. We have no guarantee. Only biblical Christianity offers that hope. Nobody else does. And then salvation is all of God. Exclamation point. It has nothing to do with us. It was established by the eternal purposes of God. When the Lord Jesus Christ came, he didn't find out on the spur of the moment, oh man, I'm going to the cross? Nobody told me this part. No. He came because the eternal purposes of God the Father were that his son would come to be the sacrifice. And he knew right from the beginning he came to die. And there was no plan B. I have actually heard theologians say that God, if there would have been another way or if God would have come, been able to come up with something on the spur of the moment, that it would have spurred Jesus or spared Jesus Christ from going to the cross. That's heresy. There was no other way for Jesus to be able to die. He came at the right time in the right place so that he would shed his blood. It wasn't a spilling. It wasn't an accident. If we were tempted to refer to theology just as it pertains to the ungodly, then we would miss the richness of what God has to say about himself. The term theology simply means a word about God. Christian theology is the study of the divine, in your blank there on letter C, is the study of the divine revelation in the Bible. It has God as its perpetual centerpiece, God's word as its source, and godliness as its aim. Somebody want to read Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Hebrews 4, 12. Hebrews 4, 12. Yes, sir. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. When we are, how do I want to illustrate this? When we are, let's use marriage for example. I know there are a lot of memes out there about marriage on the internet, on Facebook, on whatever. So one of my favorite ones is the guy who asks his wife, well, what would you like for dinner? 
oh, anything works, anything will be fine. So the husband asks, he says, well, what about hamburgers? No, nah, I don't really want hamburgers. <laughs> well, what about chicken? Uh, no, I'm not really feeling chicken today. Uh, fish? Red lobster? No, we ate a red lobster two days ago. I really don't want that. So what do you want? Oh, anything will be fine. <laughs> now, we can think that we understand our spouse, but the reality is that until a lot of times our spouse actually tells us what they want, we're not going to understand. Now, another favorite cartoon that I've seen is, you know, the new book that has come out that helps you to be able to understand women. And it's like, this is volume one, and the book goes all the way here to the floor, you know, and there's 673 books in this set. And to understand a man is just one page. Now, for us to understand the Word of God, for us to be able to change... We need to understand that the Word of God is going to cut down to where even our spouses don't know us. Because that's what we're going to change. That's how we're going to go from being an ungodly person or maybe a mediocre person to somebody who is becoming more like Jesus Christ. God is not going to just dust off the exterior and reform you without completely transforming you and your mind. Again, we've talked about this before, 1 Corinthians 9.27, the word gumnos, from which we get the word gymnasium. It is hard work. It's a lot of sweat to be able to get to the point where we need to change. I can drive by the gym all day long and I'm not going to shed any weight. You see, you go to the gym every week. And man, I go four or five times a day. Well, what do you do? Why don't I just sit there in the parking lot? But I went to the gym. It's not going to help me, is it? I have to actually apply those things that are there. I have to get on the weight machine. I have to get on the track. I have to sit in the sauna. I have to do swimming laps or whatever it is. And it's the same thing. If the only time we you ever pick up the Word of God is to be able to take a look at it. Mm, I love that smell, by the way. Mm. And that's all it is. Your life's not going to change. Psalm 119.9 says, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word? There has to be a renewed mind. A willingness. For example, we gave this illustration, I believe, a couple of, uh, a couple of classes ago. But if somebody is struggling, let's say in the area of alcohol, and they get drunk, and, and they're violating Ephesians chapter 5, verse 17, Be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. And so this person is struggling and they're maybe a fairly new believer or maybe they've fallen on hard times or whatever and so they've taken up alcohol. And this person knows and recognizes that what they're doing is sin. So we find out and we start counseling them and we start with the Word of God, we continue with the Word of God, and we end with the Word of God. The Word of God says, be not drunk with wine. So what are we going to do to be able to help this individual stop doing what they're doing? They need to have a change of mind, direction, behavior, character, environment. So if we know that this person is struggling and they go by this particular bar or whatever on the way home every Friday night, then we're going to hold them accountable and we know they get off, say, at 5.30. We're going to call them at 5.45 and say, hey, have you made it home? You said you wanted to be accountable according to the word of God. Which way did you go home? 
You see how the Word of God now changes us? Because we are seeking to help bear one another's burdens. Helping bear one another's burdens isn't just a matter of... of Brother Jeff, if you don't mind coming up here for just a moment, please. So Brother Jeff tells me something that's going on in his life. Sorry to hear that, Brother. We'll be praying for you. You don't have to raise your hand, but I'm sure we've all gone through that. And, and to go through whatever turmoil, whatever trouble, whatever trial, if you're struggling, it's because somebody else before you has struggled, somebody after you will struggle. And what I've got to do is be able to come alongside him and I need to be able to tell him, hey brother, I don't understand what you're going through because the struggles you have are between you and God, but it is affecting your testimony. There are areas that have affected my testimony and together we can walk the path of progressively being sanctified, of becoming more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you've issued, you, you read the commitment to the church, and you read the church covenant, and I want to see that, number one, that you're truly serious in what you said. Did you truly make that commitment before God? Yes. Then let's do what it takes to be able to change that behavior. See the difference? I've walked alongside him. I'm helping to bear his burden. So he's going to make one. Thank you, brother. He's going to make one of two choices. He's going to avoid my call at 5:45 every Friday night after a while, or we're going to have to find some other way to be able to do this. So it may be that we meet up at McDonald's to be able to talk. Hey, how how are how are things in your life between you and God this week? But you know who else is involved? Who else is putting hard sweat, blood and tears into this? You and who else? Your accountability partner. Because if they care about you, truly care about you, they're going to tell you the truth. They're not going to obscure it. We're not going to use unbiblical words in counseling. We're not going to tell somebody that they're an alcoholic. We're going to tell them they're a drunkard. We're not going to tell somebody that it's okay for them to sleep around as long as they just do it in the privacy of their own home. We're going to tell them, no, if you're married, you're an adulterer. And if you're not, you're a fornicator. Now, is that harsh? Yeah, it's harsh. But it's also biblical because the Bible says that we will save the person's soul from hell, pulling them out of the fire. And that's the hard part of true biblical Christianity. Because it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. It takes a lot of being willing to sometimes lose friends if they're not willing to do what is right. And we may do that for a short time, but a true friend, a true Christian, is actually going to accept the rebuke. They are going to accept the chastisement. And again, I recognize that's hard. I've been there. I've been on both sides. David Wells said, Theology is the sustained effort to know the character, will, and acts of the triune God as he has disclosed and interpreted these for his people in Scripture in order that we might know him, to learn, our th to, learn to think our thoughts after him, 
to live our lives in his world on his terms and by thought and action project his truths into our own time and culture. The Bible doesn't change. It doesn't matter whether if the Lord does, Jesus Christ doesn't return for a thousand years. Hopefully, prayerfully in America, there will still be ministers who are standing and proclaiming this is God's word. It is truth, period. And if it won't be here in America, it will be in some other countries around the world. And it will always be that way until the Lord Jesus Christ returns. So why study theology? There were seven reasons that were given um, to be able to study the theology strengthens the relationship between God and man. This was given by a Scottish pastor and theologian. And we're just going to read through these without a lot of comment this evening. Number one, to ascertain the character of God and its aspect toward us. You could actually stop there for a very long time and go pick up a book entitled The Holiness of God by J.C. Ryle and you'll be there for the rest of your life just on the character of God. Because the more you understand, and this is another one of those, please hear this, please take this to heart, the more you understand the character and the holiness of God, the more humble it will make you as a believer. Because you cannot see the perfection of Christ and walk away unscathed. You remember what happened with Moses? He's in the wilderness. He goes up on the mountain. He's up on the mountain for 40 days with, the, with God. And he comes back down and what does it say happened to him? I'm sorry? He was glowing. He was glowing. Literally so bright that it scared the people. He'd been in the presence. He, he'd been under the Shekinah glory. He'd been in the presence of the one who is perfect, who never sinned whatsoever for 40 days. And so he comes down and it says that he had to cover his face. After a while though, what happened to the shine? To the glow? Went away, right? Because he wasn't constantly in the presence of God. And that's the way it is with us. For example, if we go on vacation, we get a tan. Some of you burn, some of you tan. But if you go and you get a tan, somebody comes back and says, oh, that's just a fake tan. No, it's not a fake tan, it's a real tan. And so three weeks later, it's almost gone, and we're in the dead of winter here in Wyoming, and you just came back from Cozumel or Cancun. And you say, ah, oh, see, I told you it was just a fake tan. No, it wasn't a fake tan. We just haven't seen the sun. That's why I like... Brother Jeremy can go to England for a three-year assignment. He comes back. It ain't a tan. It's rust. Because <laughs> there's a lot of rain in England. <laughs> but after a while, you get in the presence of the sun, and it is going to change you. You get in the presence of Jesus Christ, and it will change you. Or it will drive you further away from him, and it will reveal the fact that you are not a true believer to begin with. We were talking about this yesterday with some of the young men. <coughs> When, we're, when, when Jesus Christ is speaking and he says, depart from me, I never knew you, we're talking about the relationship. It has nothing to do with what you do or what you don't do or how much you feed to somebody or give to somebody else to feed or how much you give to the church or how much you whatever, fill in the blank. It's do you have a relationship with God? Does he know you? Most of us don't really know each other. I mean, we have some kind of mutual acquaintances or maybe we know something, we've used an electrician or we've used a painter or we've used a tax accountant or whatever, but what actually changes that level of a 
appreciation for one another. It's when I go through a difficult time or you go through a difficult time and we are standing there side by side because no other painters are going to do that for you unless they're a believer. Or if you're an electrician or if you're a truck driver. Because the world doesn't really care what problems you're going through, brother. The world doesn't care whether your marriage falls apart. Your neighbors really don't care whether your marriage is falling apart. But God does, and we as believers should also care. Well, that was the short one, number two. <laughs> to contemplate the display of his attributes in his works and dispensations. And here you'll have to stop, and you'll have to actually pick up the book by A.W. Tozer, The Attributes of God. Or the one by A.W. Pink. Number three, to discover his designs toward man in his original and his present state. Again, we mentioned this last week. Four chapters out of 1,189 chapters in the entire Bible do not deal, four out of all of those do not deal with the fall of man. Genesis 1 and 2, the fall happens in chapter 3, and then we have the end where there's a new heaven and a new earth in Genesis chapter or Revelation 21 and 22. Everything will come full circle. Number four, to know this mighty being as far as he may be known, which is the noblest aim of the human understanding. Now, for us to... Another book here, a good one on this, if you're writing these down, you want to read them, is The Knowledge of the Holy. Great book. How much do we really know God? You see, if I ask you about the relationship you have with your wife or your spouse, and I were to ask you, well, how much do you know your wife? How many of you have ever played one of those games? Normally it's at a couple's retreat or something, and, and they come up with some obscure facts, and the man's supposed to hold up his sign, and he says, that's my wife, or that's my husband when it's the wife's turn. How many of you ever played a game like that, or seen it? Yeah? God knows you more deeply and more intimately than your spouse ever will. But if all we have is the surface knowledge, if I were to ask you to define, and I'm not asking you to do this right now, but I would challenge you, if you want a little bit of deep homework, hard-hitting homework, sit down with a piece of paper, without a book, without the Bible, and write down how much you actually know about God. Most Christians couldn't fill a page. It's pretty painful, isn't it? And then you want to see how God sees you in your present state? Here's a... I use this in my counseling. My counsel. Write this down. This is a hard one. Some of you may not be here at the next class if you start doing this one. 75 ways. 75 ways what? 75 ways in which I am selfish. Yeah, none of us are. So you start with the first 10, 12, 15. Those ones are going to come fairly easy. But then you start with the next 10 or so, and it's really going to start taking a lot more thought. For example, let me give you a few funny illustrations of this. You go and I hate going 
into the bathroom and finding that there's no toilet paper. Or you find that somebody has carefully crafted the end of the roll so there's one square. <laughs> Is that selfish? Come on, let's be honest. That's selfish, right? Yeah, yeah, well. But for the person who left it there, that's selfish. Oh, what about as a, as a, as a teenager and we go up to the fridge and there's about that much orange juice, so, so we empty it just about all and then put the top back on and stick it in the fridge. I'm sure you guys have never done this, so I'm just talking off the top of my head right now. don't know what you're talking about. Thank you, Hannah. And seriously, when you do that, you start having to get, you have to get beyond the external stuff. You have to get beyond the, hey, I don't take care of whatever it may be. I don't do this. I leave my socks laying out. I be, And now after a while, you have to get past that and you have to start going into the deeper areas. I'm selfish in my life where I display selfishness when I want my way more than I do God's way. If I'm struggling in a, in a particular area... If I'm sitting there and my wife wants my attention, and I know she wants my attention, but I'm not having a good day, and so I'm just looking at my paper pretending like I'm not hearing her, I'm being selfish. Here, here's a harder one for you and for me. If I don't care enough about my kids on a particular day that it's more important for me to do whatever it is, fill in the blank that I have as a crutch in my life, instead of seeking to disciple my children and my wife that day, I'm being selfish. You see, now we're beyond the external. Now we're deep into the issues of the heart, for it is out of the heart that the mouth speaks. Number five, to learn our duty to him, the means of enjoying his favor, the hopes which we are authorized to entertain, and the wonderful expedient by which our fallen race is restored to purity and happiness. Who wouldn't want to be in eternity for all of, for all of eternity to be able to be with the Lord Jesus Christ without sinning once? I'm looking forward to that day. Because this life, I can't tell you a single day in my entire life that hasn't been without sin. And it's not because we sin, therefore we are sinners. We are sinners, and therefore we sin. What is the duty of man? Fear God. Keep His commandments. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13. Number six, why study theology? To love him, the most worthy exercise of our affections. I've used this illustration with you. When my wife and I were dating and she wrote me letters and I wrote her letters, I would devour the letter. I would read it over and over and over. I didn't just sniff the envelope, the smell, the perfume that she put on it. I opened the letter and I read it because I wanted to know what she had to say. I wanted to know her more deeply. You are never, never going to know God deeply unless you bury your nose in his love letter to you and to me. You say, I love Jesus. It's easy to sing, Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Okay, where does it say that? John 3.16, okay, now we've gotten beyond that one. What's the next one? Where else does it say that Jesus loves us? 
If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's what he says to us. Absolutely. First John. First John. What about Ephesians chapter one? Does all this thing all of this to the praise of his glory? Wow. And again, I keep reminding you, go and look in the mirror into the deepest, deepest parts and you look deep in your own eyes and realize that the God who saved you was enough to set his eternal love on you despite knowing what's down there in those depths. That's humbling. And it should also bring us to repent, to confess our sins, to be willing to change the things that need to be changed. Number seven, to serve him. The most honorable and delightful purpose to which we can devote our time and talents. Remember Jonathan Edwards? Again, if you guys have not listened to those that series of podcasts, Men Who Rock the World by Dr. Steve Lawson, if you only listen to one of them, listen to the one by Jonathan Edwards, or about Jonathan Edwards. And then when you're done, or if you want a summation, instead of reading for an hour... You can come upstairs into my office and you can read the 70 resolutions that Jonathan Edwards wrote. Took him two years to write them and he started one year after he got saved. Yeah. Some of those things I don't even think about on a weekly or a monthly basis. He read them every day. What are some practical ways that a study of theology might apply to our lives? Who's got an answer? Yes, sir. Actually, I just wanted to follow up with the before you look at the next questions, I wrote down in the book that I said this is really a um, a proper reason to have proper creeds and confessions. Yeah. Because it keeps it keeps that focus really there on those seven things, and it does it, it repeats those, but it really keeps those affections with good theology. Yeah. It's one of the reasons why the men and I have been talking in regards to a church covenant because basically it gives a summation of our 18-page document that we have for our Constitution. It basically is a summarization of what we believe and who we are. So did anybody have an answer for that? Or what do you have as an answer? What are practical ways that a study of theology might apply to your life? To learn our role and to serve God. Okay. Give you a right view of God. Right view of God. Yep. For example, if if you come up to me and you say, "Well, what about this or what about that?" and I think about it and I think, "Yeah, well, yeah, you can do that if you want to." Well, is it God's will? Well, you know, I don't know. Have you tried reading the scriptures? Well, no, not really. How do you know what God says if you're not reading what he has to say to you? And then all we're left with is emotions and feelings. And we end up and somebody comes up and says, well, the Bible says that we shouldn't be doing that. Well, that's just your opinion. No. Now we're dealing with the sufficiency of Scripture. Either either Scripture is good for all that pertains to life and godliness or it's not. You can't have your cake and eat it too. What are the dangers, let us see, of bad theology or proud theology? We've seen this happen in church history over the couple of millennia since the beginning. Um, we see a lot of compromisation with the world. And it uh, happens time and time again. Mm-hmm. It's more 
emotional and human base, not God's way. Okay. It's misleading. Misleading? It confuses people. It's where false teaching starts. Where false teaching starts? Sterling? A low view of God produces a low view of sin, a low view of the church, and a low view of the people. Yep. But a high view of God, a high view of theology gives you a proper theology, a proper life understanding, and it also gives you a low view of yourself, a man. You see, because if there was anything that was good enough in us that God just had to have, he wouldn't have needed to send Jesus to the cross. That's the truth of the gospel. Kevin DeYoung stated, Bad theology leads to despair. Proud theology leads to disdain. But humble, heartfelt, reformed theology always should lead to doxology. You all know the doxology? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. That's doxology. And everybody says, Amen. So be it. I agree. Let's meditate on this. Number four, what are the various major kinds of theology? There were seven that were given here. Number one, biblical theology. This is simply put, or thematically by biblical chronology or by author with respect to the progressive revelation of the Bible. If you have never gone through the entire word of God, I would challenge you first of all to read it from cover to cover. There are plenty of options. You can read it over, you can go to YouVersion for example, um, and you can read it over two years, one year, three years, 90 days, whatever you want. But when you go through it the second time, if you complete the first time, I would highly recommend going through it chronologically to see how everything comes together in a certain order. So, for example, you would find the book of Job taking place after, right after Genesis. And then when you find each of the minor prophets are written in a certain order, or the major prophets and how Psalms comes into this, it's actually really an eye-opener. It's a great way to be able to study and understand the scriptures. Dogmatic theology. This, sorry, yes. Sorry. Uh, just for your information, there, there are, uh, there, there, there is a chronological Bible available out there. Yeah. I don't know if any of you have ever seen it. Mm-hmm. Like especially in the New Testament, uh, it'll go chronologically how everything took place. And uh, But they are available. I think you can purchase them on Amazon. And it's almost like, and that's a great one, and I forgot about that, but it's, it's like when it comes to a harmony of the gospel, when it talks about the crucifixion, every one of the four gospels are all written one right after the other in the events that actually took place. That's how you can see, for example, there were seven sayings on the cross by Jesus. But without actually reading all four books, and then by the time you get to the end of John, you haven't quite put them all together. So a chronological approach is a great, great way to be able to read it. Great reminder. 
dogmatic theology. This is the organization of Scripture with an emphasis on favored or selected church creeds. Now, originally, there were a lot of illiterate people within the church. And one of the reasons for the creeds and the confessions was to be able to instill in them, they could memorize the creed, memorize the confession, and it would actually, people could say, well, what do you believe? And they could say, I believe in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and you go through whatever creed it is that you have actually memorized. It is a great way to be able to study and see how the early church back around 200, 300 AD actually began to put some of these theological points together in a cohesive fashion. Exegetical. This is the exegetical organization of individual texts. So when we are talking about exegeting the scriptures, we are taking this and we are expositing them verse by verse. We're trying to break out what the passage actually has to say. Historical. Historical study of apostolic era to the present age. Now we have talked about this already. I shared this with the men. Uh, but we're looking to have a leadership class starting in January. And one of the things we're going to do is we're going to see church history and we're going to see reef for the, from the Reformation. We've got timelines and things so that you can see how all, all of this stuff fits together. I am super excited about this. And I think that you'll be excited if you're able to come to this class. It will also be recorded. But you'll be charged. No, I'm just kidding. Natural theology. What can be known about God by human reason alone through the empirical study of the natural world? What verse maybe comes to your mind when we're talking about creation? Besides Genesis 1.1, where, what do we get in the New Testament? The Bible says that everybody will stand before God and they will have no excuse because of what? Natural revelation. Even creation tells the story of God. Practical theology, or pastoral, personal application of doctrinal truths in the lives of the church and individual Christians. If all we do is get up and give you facts about the scripture, or we exegete, or we exposit a particular verse, but I don't tell you how to apply it to your life, I have missed part of the ministry of the word. Because it requires application. It requires us to be able to say, hey... This is what the scripture says. Now this is what you need to do to be more like Christ is to obey this. To walk this path. Psalm 1 for example. Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly nor stands in the way of sinners nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Amen. Let's everybody stand. We'll pronounce a benediction. I haven't told you what you need to be able to do. And to be able to tell you that as a messenger of God and from his word, I need to be able to understand what the text is saying and then to be able to tell you how you apply this on a day-by-day -day basis. If you're struggling in your marriage or you're struggling with a work relationship or whatever, how am I going to be able to answer those questions? To be able to go and, for example, when we have, and I can't tell you how many times it has happened, a couple comes and they sit down and they want to be counseled and we say, Okay, tell me what's going on. First thing she says is, he does, he said. And she turns around and says, he said, she said. And it goes back and forth. And I, and I tell everyone on the same thing, listen, I really don't care about those things because it's not going to change. All you're doing is exhibiting the symptoms of the deeper problem right now. And the deeper problem is you're both smoking your own brand of flesh. So how do we change that? How do we become more like the Lord Jesus Christ? 
The goal should be to see you as a godly man become so like the Lord Jesus Christ that you love your wife with an unconditional love, regardless of what she does or doesn't do for you. Wives, you are also called, and you are called to submit just as the husband is to submit unto the Lord and to submit to one another within the church. And you're called to be able to submit before Christ as to the Lord. That doesn't mean to be used as a doormat. It means that we, or that you as a wife, are to respond to how God's divine order is found in the church as well as in creation. That doesn't make you any less. That doesn't make a man more. That's why I believe, I've heard this from Dad growing up for years, that's why God created Eve out of man's side. Not out of his head. Not out of his foot. Not to be over him, nor to be trampled upon. But together, in the sanctity of life, in the sanctity of marriage, together you are pointing others to Jesus Christ. And again, that's not easy. Systematic theology. This is simply an organization of scripture by a blend of scriptural teaching. In other words, the book that you've got in front of you, if you were to open up to any one of the major chapter headings, Theology, Christology, Hamartiology, which is the doctrine of sin, Angelology, the doctrine of angels and demons, the doctrine of eschatology, the doctrine of last things. This is what systematic theology is. We're going to try to finish this up here with question number five. (coughs) What is systematic theology? A. It involves the orderly bringing together of words about God or a bringing together of theology in an organized fashion. I would say that that thousand page tome is pretty orderly. I mean, yes, we could cover all of those things. We could study, we could prepare. I was sharing with Sam and Alicia earlier today and I said, listen, I said, I don't have that book memorized. I'll never have that book memorized. And I could take any one of you gave me one of those topics. If I had to go through another ordination council or whatever, I'd have to probably do a ton of studying to be able to get to where I could actually answer some of those questions fluently. Because some of them we don't actually discuss on a regular basis. But if we're going to discuss the entire council of God and we're going to preach it, we need to not just be preaching it, but we need to be living it. Systematic theology also answers the question, what does the completed Bible teach on any one theme or topic? Going back to marriage again. Ephesians 4.32, be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving even as Christ forgave you. Ephesians chapter 4, don't let the sun go down upon your wrath. Genesis chapter 3, God gave man a woman to be his helpmate. There are a number of verses that deal with marriage. In the beginning, Jesus himself endorsed what took place in the beginning because he was there and he said, have you not read that in the beginning he made them male and female? So somebody comes up to you and says, well, it's okay if I want to sleep with somebody of the same sex, if I want to marry them. No, God says it's not. It doesn't matter whether every country in the world endorses it or not. It's still going to be wrong from now until eternity. Number three. What is a proper study of systematic theology due to the intellect? If you have a proper theology, remember what we talked about a little bit this morning, but then last Sunday when we were talking about faith, hope, and love? 
1 Corinthians chapter 13. If you have a proper theology just from the little that you have already learned in this class, how is it going to change those three aspects in your life? How's it going to change your faith? It's going to strengthen everything. Going to strengthen your faith. Okay. What about love? Something other than strengthen. Yeah. What else? The longer you're married, the more you know your spouse, right? Or we should. But it takes work to be able to get to that. Affection. What is our affection? What is it that we long after? Remember what Paul said to the church at Corinth? We mentioned it several times this morning in the message. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Whether you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. On what is your affection? Colossians chapter 3. Somebody look up that one for us. Colossians 3 verse 1. Verse 1 and verse 2. Colossians 3, 1 and 2. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Do you know why we struggle a lot of times? Because our focus is wrong. If, if I take off my glasses right now, I have myopia. <coughs> For those of you who are not aware of that, most of you are wearing glasses, and most of you probably have myopia, even if you've never heard the word before. Uh, myopia simply means short-sighted. If I take my glasses off, everybody is blurry. I can't see any face, not even up here. My eyes are that bad. So what do I do? I have to wear something that corrects my vision. I have to wear something that allows me to drive, otherwise you wouldn't be on the road. And the same thing with the Bible. If I'm having a struggle being able to keep things in focus and things continually keep falling apart in my life, I need to put on some corrective lenses. And the corrective lenses are right here in God's Word. And you know, that's the joy I can't tell you, my dad, he'll tell you the same thing. I'm sure Brother Jeff, he's preached enough or taught. Gabe has. Scott has. You know, there is no greater joy, like Paul says, than to watch somebody change and become more like Christ before your very eyes. And you know what's even more? Almost a sense of irony is when that person comes up and says, well, you know, have you seen any changes in me recently? Have I seen any changes in you? You ain't even the same person that you were six months ago. Really? Yeah, really. Because it's happened so gradually, you just don't realize. I can remember when I was growing up. And some of you probably had that mark on the, you know, you put the pencil mark up there and see how much you've grown over the course of the year. Well, mine didn't change very much from year to year. I'll just say it before Mike, before Mike or Gabe says something. <laughs> Gabe, go home. <laughs> we'll talk later. Elder meeting right after the service. <laughs> but you know what happened after a while? I there was actually a little bit of growth. And then a little bit more. Eventually I passed my mom. One of the best days of my life. <laughs> But then my brothers all grew up and they were all younger than me and they're all taller than me. But I grew. 
And you will grow too if you spend time with God. If you spend time in His Word. And normally the last person to ever see it is going to be you. But others will start seeing Jesus in you and they'll realize, oh wow. And you'll realize eventually that you're having an impact on somebody else's life. And other people are changing because they're watching your life. And you know all that does, it doesn't make you proud. It helps humble you and realize that because other people are watching your life, man, I really need to be a little more careful in what I say or do or think or how I act. John Murray said, It is the most noble of all studies because its province is the whole counsel of God and seeks as no other discipline to set forth the riches of God's revelation in the orderly and embrace manner which is its peculiar method and function. Theology is not fully finished until it has warmed the heart, which is the affections, and promoted the volition, which is the will, to act in obedience to its content. That is why we study theology. That's why it makes a difference day by day. Any questions? Lord, yes. Uh, on that, uh, the chronological Bible. Yes, sir. With Amazon, and you, they're about fifteen dollars, and you can purchase them in any, just about any translation you want. Oh, it is. I didn't realize there was a chronological one on the Bible app. I know it can. You can read one, or they, there's one that you can read. Yeah, yeah. The one on you version is not, in my estimation, is not a clear one, uh, because it doesn't break it down into verse sections. Like when it comes to the Gospels, it actually covers whole chapters or whatever. Yeah, and you still got to kind of put it together. But there are other ones that are out there as well. Any other questions? I would just add that yeah. if you wanted a, a book that was that had put all of the um, gospels together, it's the One Perfect Life. John McCarthy did that book. Okay. It has all the gospels together. Good book. Anybody else? Well, as always, if you have any questions, um, you're welcome to call, text, write, smoke signals, whatever works for you, And uh, because we want you to be able to understand this. And that's one of the reasons why we're going slowly, because I want you to be able to comprehend what we're studying. It's that important. Amen. Amen. We talked about three books, the knowledge of the Holy Bible. The pursuit of holiness. And then if you want one that's really good bedtime reading, get the death of death and the death of Christ by John Owen. <laughs> I'm just kidding. You will that's something that you take one sentence, one paragraph at a time. And you just die chest for a month. <laughs> yeah. Yep. All right. If there's no other questions, let's close in prayer.
Oh, yes, Dad. Um, for those of you who do not know, we do have a library upstairs, quite an extensive one. And then just fill out the form, just sign on the certificate to check out, and then the return it to the yeah. You'll notice that in every book there's a label and it says, this book was either borrowed or stolen from the library of Paul S. <laughs> and I'll come looking for you. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for theology. Thank you for your word. Thank you that of all the religions in the world that you set your love upon us and that you have given us a means whereby we can know you, we can know our own hearts, and we can know what you expect and demand from us. This is the whole duty of man, to fear God and to keep his commandments. As we go from here this evening, I pray that you would change us. As David said in Psalm 116, What shall I render unto the Lord for all his benefits towards me? Help us to leave from here this evening remembering the benefits that you have handed to us so graciously. We ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen. Amen.